Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. months ago, right? maybe March or something like that. So <laughs> as Casey said, um, I'll just be uh, kind of, I guess, continuing on with this text you've been studying with Casey. Um, before we start in, I usually like to chant a few, uh, in, in my, I'm part of the Tibetan tradition, uh, mostly Nima Gulu I've studied in, and the Tibetan uh, traditions, and uh, Tibetan Buddhist traditions. And uh, usually we do a little bit of preliminary chanting uh, before uh, teaching, so if that's okay with you, I'm going to just do a bit. And um, what I suggest is uh, just while I chant, if you want to um, just meditate a little bit on your intention for coming here, also sort of thinking about um, how we relate in the world and sort of that our intention also can um, grow into an intention that whatever we cultivate here together today in this short time may become um, a cause for us to benefit others and to really be able to benefit the world and that the world can become a more peaceful um, and enlightened place. <laughs> so if you reflect on that, I'll chant a little bit. Kordu kandru nambu kur kyeki jesu dhanru ki Jingya lamchir shesu so guru pema siddhi hum Urgin yugi nucha sam pema gyasar dhambu la Yamsen chukhi mudru ni pema june shesu tra Kordu kandru nambu kur kegi jesu dan druki Jinge lamchir shesu so guru pema siddhi hong Hong argin yugin cha sam pema gesar nambu la Yamsen chukhi mudru ni pema juni shesu tra Kordu kandru mampu kur kiki jesu dhandru ki Jinge lamchir shesu so guru pema siddhi hum Omen chogi inge bodhane do sam sange kuni no ane ransan chogong omo tope Sawe lamen shamba sowa bim Adun sawe Thank you. So, um, this particular text, um, 37 Practices of Bodhisattva, is really a um, kind of a core text in Tibetan Buddhism. It's something that everybody studies um, monks, nuns, householder practitioners, everybody. Yeah? So, everybody knows about this text. Um, I've studied it with a few of my teachers. Um, also, it, um, it kind of goes into a category where it really is like, like as Casey's probably pointed out, really everything's included in this text. It's quite a, you know, we, I think in Tibetan culture, they love these kinds of things where it's kind of succinct and packed in there. But also, um, you know, you can break this out. So in some commentaries, it breaks it out into much uh, longer forms and sort of commentary on each verse. So in each of these verses, it's packed with actually a lot of things. I'm sure you've recognized it. Most of you have been going to, to most Sundays with Casey. Yeah, so you're familiar with it. Um, the author here, uh, Togme Zampo, is a, a really famous uh, teacher within Tibetan Buddhism. Um, he's known as a bodhisattva, and I'll explain what that is a little bit. Um, so these 37 practices of a bodhisattva are sort of his distillation of uh, his understanding from a sort of learning, um, what do you call it, being educated, that perspective, but also an experiential perspective, where he actually practiced the path of uh, bodhicitta, of the Mahayana path of Buddhism, and then 
distilled that into these verses. So they're both sort of informed by the tradition and also an expression of his own experience. Yeah. Um, you could kind of say that the 37 practices of Bodhisattva, although it goes into a lot more, um, it really does, especially the, what we're focusing on today, it really goes into this corpus of teachings called Lojang yeah, in Tibetan. So Lo means like a, like a mind, uh, like a dualistic mind, and then Zhang means to train. So here, especially what we're going to talk about today, is within the context of Lojang. So Lojang, just to frame it a little bit, give you a little bit of history, um, there's a great uh, master from India in the, I believe, the 10th century. He uh, named, named Tisha, and he brought some of these teachings over um, into Tibet, and they not only sort of thrived, but they, came, they, they became like a core practice within Tibetan Buddhism. So essentially, Lojang, you can distill it as um, exchanging oneself for others. I mean, the practice kind of distills into that, but of course, Lojang in, in, encapsulates many, many different texts, a um, lot of different commentaries, you know, just huge volumes of things. Um, what we're going to talk about today, uh, which is Tonglen, which is within the, the practice of Lojong, um, actually when it was originally taught, so when Atisha originally taught it and then it started to spread within Tibet as a practice lineage, it was an ear-whispered lineage. This means that it was passed from master to student via like, like secretly, meaning it wasn't taught to a big group, it was taught sort of individually. And so this practice is actually kind of more of a hidden practice. So it remained secret. Um, I like to say that because it makes it sexier, right? <laughs> so so, uh, so it, it was, you know, now it's not a hidden practice. So, so you don't have to feel too special. <laughs> um, now it's taught pretty widely. Um, so, but at that, at that time, it was considered secret because it's, it's sort of this practice that one does individually, internally, um, without having to show off, without some kind of sense of like, I'm this great, compassionate, loving person. You know, nowadays, you know, when someone does an act of compassion, they gotta post it on Facebook, they gotta like, you know, write an article about it, it becomes like a news item, right? And this is good in one way because then others see that, and then you see, wow, that's wonderful, and you can rejoice in that, and then maybe you wanna do it yourself. But in another way, it's like, okay, well, like, you know, <laughs> depends on their motivation, right? Um, especially in politics. So um, anyway, so I think there's one reason it was kept secret like that, because just to keep, be humble, be a humble practitioner, where you're, you're putting in your effort, you're, you're, you're willing to sort of uh, exchange oneself for others, and I'll go into the reasons for that uh, as the talk goes on. And then, um, and so there's a humbleness there that keeps the practitioner uh, humble for their benefit and for the benefit of others. And I think also the practice is quite challenging. So, you know, Tonglen can be presented in a lot of different ways. Um, these days we also have presentations of it that are a little bit more, like, um, friendly, I'd say, like, to be, like, more politically correct. Um, and so, and that's fine. I think we have to come at it, you know, for us, I really view Dharma practice and meditation practice as sort of, we have to find our doorway in. So for a lot of us, our doorway is either some great, a really uh, profound suffering happened in our life, be it an illness or the death of a loved one or an accident or something, and then we look for more meaning in our life. This can be one door doorway for a lot of us. And I think in our culture, the other doorway is just, you know, we're stressed out. You know, we live in an extremely fast-paced, busy culture, and we, we want some relief. And, uh, you know, they've done a good job marketing mindfulness meditation. <laughs> They don't tell you the other side of it, which is it becomes challenging at some point to really make some progress in it, yeah? And this is good. Like, we want challenging, you know? So, so in a sense, what we're talking about today actually, like, will make you uncomfortable. And there's, there's a good part of that. So I want to emphasize that, that if we're always looking for comfort when we're approaching our spiritual practice, we're going to be disappointed. Uh, because at, at a certain point, well, life is just uncomfortable in general. I mean, this is the, the first noble truth from the Buddha, right? The truth of uncomfort. So, or the truth of dissatisfaction. So it's just, it's just the nature of things. But also the spiritual path itself, because we're churning our own neurosis, our own attachment, anger, aversion, uh, ignorance, yeah? It's going to become uncomfortable at certain points because we eventually hit walls and we have to face ourselves. And not everything about 
I could speak for myself. Not everything about myself I like, and is, it is useful. And there's a lot of areas that are I have blind spots, and I need to work on. So then, a big part of the spiritual path is coming against those as the sort of dark uh, is, darkness is brought into the light. Essentially, to use that metaphor, right? So, um, where was I? So, this practice of lojong. Uh, then spread around Tibet, and um, it's very popular now. Like you know, Dalai Lama has a lot of commentaries on it. You can find a lot. Pema Chodron has a wonderful book on it, on different stuff. Yeah, and it's very useful. So we're going to get into that. Um, so I just wanted to re recap a little bit. If it's okay, Casey. Casey's been, I'm sure, wonderfully going over these verses for you guys. Um, so you know, these verses. So today we're going to talk about verse 11. Yeah, um, but just be, as a preliminary before getting into that. Um, these other verses, really what they function as is they, they are the preliminary for as we get into verse 11 and further on in the text. Um, for instance, as in the first verse, as we really reflect on our human life, you know, often I feel like, um, you know, there's this, there's this story of a, a, a Tibetan, what do you call it, like a myth or story, of, a, of a, like a poor man who, who spends his whole life fretting um, that he doesn't have any money, that he's, he's always, you know, he, he's jealous of others who have money, and he never can seem to sort of, you know, get it together, right? But all this while, buried under his fireplace, the last tenant buried a treasure, and he just doesn't know it's there. So it's been sitting there the whole time, you know, like millions of dollars worth of gold, but he doesn't know that. So he spends his whole life in this kind of, uh, as Chogim Trungpa used the term, like a poverty mentality, you know? Um, so really, this first verse, when we're meditating on our perfect human rebirth, we're recognizing what we have and the kind of gold we have. And it's not, I, I don't actually, I did not find this easy to recognize this. Because often, we, we might be dealing with some, some trauma from our life, also some um, uh, confidence issues, which are very common in our culture. I, I don't like to use the term self-esteem anymore, so I use the term confidence. Um, and, and so... Um, this is this meditation is really important for churning that. So again, it's like with all of these practices, these are very deep. You could sit with these verses and then read commentaries on the practice and spend you know months and months reflecting on this. Because as we churn and we reflect, um, the benefit comes out of that work and reflection. It's not just like oh I understand. Yes, I have a human rebirth and you know I can think more. I can meditate that a dog, for instance, can right, and I have more opportunity than some some people who don't have this perfect human rebirth, or whatever, right? We can, you know, we're smart people, we can just think, yes, I have this. But that's really not the point. The point is to really sit with these and reflect. Because what happens is that slowly we start to recognize that gold. And as we recognize that gold, there's incredible joy that comes about through meditating on this verse in particular. And then we really want to make use of our time. And it actually makes it easier to meditate. So the whole point of these kind of preliminary verses is to want to meditate. Because I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't want to meditate all the time, <laughs> you know? It's hard. It's, it takes a lot of work, and it's boring sometimes. I'd rather go to a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when, I'm, when I meditate on these preliminaries, for instance, um, the preciousness of my life, also, um, especially impermanence and, and uh, uh, remembering impermanence, remembering that, that, I, that I do have, a, I have an expiration date. <laughs> this body has an expiration date. You know, for me, that drives my practice a lot. So again, I'm just emphasizing that. You guys can do that work on your own and reflect on it. But um, the second one, I think, is really important for recognizing um, why we want to practice Tonglen. Yeah. So the second verse, I'll just repeat it. It says, the mind of attachment to loved ones wavers like water. The mind of hatred of enemies burns like fire. The mind of ignorance that forgets what to adopt and what to discard is greatly obscured. Abandoning one's fatherland is the bodhisattva's practice, yeah? Oh, I didn't say what a bodhisattva was. I should say that first. Um, I'll talk on this verse first. So, so essentially, um, mainly what we're dealing with in verse 11 is recognizing the mind of self-centeredness. So I use the term like self-centered cherishing because um, sometimes they use it as translation self-cherishing mind, which you know can be confusing because does, does that mean we don't 
you know, take care of ourselves anymore? No, it doesn't mean that, right? Of course, we have basic needs as a human being. But here we're trying to suss out, you know, this is quite tough because sometimes our basic needs are sort of mixed in with a lot of selfishness and a lot of sort of what aren't basic needs, but they're just preferences. And then as the, you know, it's like a, 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 they say like drinking salt water. So as we drink the comfort of Amer modern American culture, then, you know, we just want more and more. I mean, this is how my life is. You know, as soon as I get the, the new iPhone, I'm waiting for the next iPhone, right? So it's never ending. And again, I don't say this so you beat yourself up about it. Like, there's no judgment. This is just how it is for us. This is how our, our relative minds work. So we have to recognize at a certain point, is this causing us happiness? Or is this causing us pain and dissatisfaction, right? So this second verse here is really working with um, recognizing, first off, just the pain and dissatisfaction of these disturbing emotions, these three main disturbing emotions of attachment or, or clinging. I like to use that um, translation sometimes. Clinging, uh, anger or aversion, and then ignorance. Yeah? Ignorance being the primary, prim primarily the ignorance here is referring to ignorance of not knowing our own nature or being, being sort of uh, uh, confused about that. But it also, I think, relates to just ignorance about how to go about in, with discerning wisdom in our life, yeah? which we learn yeah, in different ways. So <clears throat> these primary uh, afflictive emotions, <clears throat> we have to also reflect on these and see, like, does that does clinging cause me pain? You know, for instance, like, I think anger is pretty easy to see. I mean, maybe not for everyone, but probably most of you in this room, I gather, you, you know, does it feel pleasurable to be angry? Like, do, are you enjoying that? Is it happy? No, I'm getting a lot of heads this way. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody else, do you agree with her? <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so that's not quite, but of course we still get angry, right? But again, through meditating in this way, we can transform our mind. This is the whole point, you know? Again, even in science now, they're seeing neuroplasticity, where we can affect the brain and, and so forth. So here, this has been known in Buddhism for 2,600 years. <laughs> You know, when we meditate and when we use our thoughts in a positive way, we can really transform our mind. And, and, and of course, this takes uh, effort and time. So here we really start to see, uh, especially with aversion, we can see that this kind of afflictive emotion is, is painful for ourselves. It's also painful for others. When we, when we act it out, we harm others. Yeah? Similarly, uh, attachment or clinging is the same. It's just more difficult and more insidious because it feels good. Temporarily, right? When I have that first scoop of my favorite Ben and Jerry's ice cream, it feels really good. You know? Then I want the second scoop because of the first scoop, right? But when I have that second scoop, sort of my pleasure starts to wane a little bit. Or for me, it's probably more like the third scoop. <laughs> the, ple the pleasure starts to wane a little bit. You know, I start to question my motivation for why I started in the first place. I start to regret it because I'm going to feel fat the next day, right? <laughs> so all these kinds of things show the nature of clinging. You know, we're, we're again, <clears throat> like enjoying something. Buddhism has no problem with that. Like enjoying a nice cup of coffee or, or a friend or your partner or whatever. There's, there's no issue with that. The issue is really talking about when we have that fixation on the trying, the, trying to make that experience permanent, right? Can you relate to this? So it's tough. I mean, this is really, really tough, especially Los Angeles. It's so beautiful. You know, if you, the more south you go, the more beautiful it gets, too, like Orange County, you know. I was in Orange County. I was like, I don't know if I have to practice Buddhism anymore. Like, <laughs> it really came to my mind. Like, you know? We have these teachings on six realms in Buddhism, so we believe that there's other realms that we can't see, right? So God realms and different mm -hmm. kinds of realms. And so God realms are really like that, you know? They're like you have enormous pleasure, so much that you wouldn't even have the thought that there's suffering, yeah? So fortunately, in, in this world, they say this is a very, we're in a very good position to practice Dharma and to meditate because there's just enough suffering that we can see through the illusion of samsara. But also, we're not overwhelmed by that suffering. We have enough free time to practice, right? So that this is why our, per, our human rebirth is so precious. So anyways, um, 
So going back, so, so the whole idea of, of bodhicitta, so bodhicitta basically means uh, the mind of awakening or, or, or awakening mind, yeah? So a bodhisattva is a, is a practitioner who engages in that, like a hero kind of practitioner who engages in that awakening mind, who has recognized that awakening mind. Um, it has uh, two aspects. So it has a relative bodhicitta and an ultimate bodhicitta. So ultimate bodhicitta refers to understanding the nature of things, understanding how are things actually existing versus how are they appearing to us, right? So here we meditate and, and try to recognize, is there some kind of illusion to our experience? And then once we recognize that illusion, we meditate more and more until that illusion breaks down. And then we can actually abide in that ultimate bodhicitta. This is actually the whole point of Buddhism, essentially. That com- because from out, out of that, what comes is an, a non-referential compassion and a non-referential loving kindness and a commitment to other beings. Well, right now, you know, generally we have to, you know, think and then generate an attitude to benefit someone else. Even if it's just, even if it, even if it's minor, you know, if we've been, if we're a very compassionate person, but still we have some kind of attitude that has to be developed. When we fully abide and recognize ultimate bodhicitta, then that this comes out naturally and very skillfully benefiting others. So really the whole point of Buddhism is pointing to this wisdom. Today we're not going to talk about that, but I just wanted to briefly mention it. Today we're mostly in relative bodhicitta. So relative bodhicitta is the um, working with our thoughts, working with our emotions, transforming um, our, our self-centered cherishing mind into the mind that wishes to benefit others and to uh, exchange ourselves with, with them. Yeah. So. Essentially, that's what, what bodhicitta is, and that's what a bodhisattva is. So bodhicitta also has these aspects of the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of sentient beings. So seeing that attachment, aversion, ignorance, jealousy, pride, all the other kinds of afflictive emotions we go through, only cause us more pain. They don't actually cause us happiness. We're, and here we're talking about ultimate happiness. Because of course we can get some momentary pleasure, like I said, from that scoop of ice cream. But here what we're, what we're looking at is, does that cause us an ultimate kind of happiness? And how are we relying on that ice cream? Now, obviously, ice cream I'm using as a metaphor for a lot of other things, right? So we can, you know, there's more things that are a lot more sticky than that for us, yes? So we have to look, how are we relying on these things in our life? Now, is it a problem, like I said, to enjoy, to have a family, to do all these things, have a loving partner? No. It's just, how are we looking on that situation? Are we looking that, on that as an ultimate refuge for our happiness? Or is it just, we understand that it's impermanent and that it'll change. So here we meditate, and we can actually be more sane in our life. We can be more we can practical and relate to things without getting so worked up. Yeah? So that's the whole point here. It's actually quite beautiful if you look at it. So in the context of, of what we're going to, of, of Tonglen, Really, we have to first start to see that um, the mind that cherishes oneself more than another is actually causing us pain. I think this is the starting place. Because to start by, by thinking, oh, all others are, you know, you know, it depends on our, our personality. If you generally, like, it's very easy for you to be loving to others and compassionate, you're a very generous person, it might be easy for you to just start by thinking of others right away. But I think first we have to reflect a little bit on why is this mind that cherishes ourselves more than others, why does it cause pain for ourselves? And then why does it cause pain for another? Yeah. <clears throat> so here it's mainly relating it to the second verse. I'm relating it to, first we have to recognize why the afflictive emotions cause us pain. Sort of exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So attachment is like drinking salt water. We always want more. It's never enough. Yeah. And it's insidious because Especially nowadays, it's, it's, quite, it's quite tough. For monks, it's very difficult too, you know, because we're inundated with more and more comfort, opportunities for comfort, more and more opportunities that this product will fix your life, right? <laughs> Just completely inundated. And then, you know, and some of it's really good, like, you know, some of it doesn't, it feels really good, whatever it is. And it's fun. I mean, I, I, you know, this one teacher I really respect, Son Sir Kensar and Bichet, he, he says, ultimately, like, what we're looking for is fun. <laughs> I think it's a good way to put it. We are just looking for fun a lot of the time. Or enjoyment, you could say. So anyways, um, we have to recognize that these, these, um, 
these situations we put ourselves in when we're, we're getting worked up by aversion, we're getting worked up by our clinging and attachment, and we're getting worked up by sort of ignorance or not having discernment, that these cause us pain. So I would advise you just, you know, reflect on that a little bit. Um, for yourself, because it doesn't matter what I say, actually. It matters what you come to a conclusion on personally. Um, let's see, going through them a little bit more. So the mindfulness of death, I already mentioned how precious that is to meditate on. Because we see we really have a finite amount of time. Yeah? And then relying on a spiritual teacher, that comes if you, if you want to practice more. Taking refuge, I'm, I'm going to skip for now. And, um, and then we get into Carmen's results. Um, and then aspiring for liberation. So this is sort of, at this point in the text, by the time you get to verse... What were the other Verse 8. The subduer said that all unbearable suffering of the three lower realms is the fruition of wrongdoing. Therefore, never committing negative deeds, even at the peril of one's life, is the bodhisattva's practice. So it's really talking about once we've seen the negative aspects or the, the unconstructive ways of engaging in, in acting out of attachment and aversion and ignorance, then we wish to turn away from that. Yeah? And we turn away from that knowing we want to uh, uh, abandon the causes for being uh, bound by those delusions. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so then the, verse 9, the pleasure of the triple world, like a dewdrop on the tip of a blade of grass, is imperiled in a single moment, striving for the supreme state of never-changing liberation as a bodhisattva's practice. So really verse 8 is talking about sort of seeing the, the you know, these are realms we can't actually see, but a Buddhist practitioner reflects on, you know, we can see the animal realm, but also reflecting on what's called a preta realm and a, and a hell realm. So one reflects on that uh, and the nature of not wanting to be born there. So from a Buddhist perspective, if we create um, uh, the causes or we engage in actions that are destructive to ourselves and others, we create causes to be born in these, in these places. And that's a religious plea, so you don't have to necessarily believe that right now, but just putting it out there. Then what happens is the practitioner turns their mind from wishing to be born there. And so then instead we engage in virtuous actions. Yeah? And we work with our attachment, aversion, and ignorance. And again, it doesn't mean we will never be attached to anything ever again, or we never will have anger again. It just means we understand that those are destructive, and we want to transform those. So then in verse 9, um, really, here it's talking about that there's, there, we can't find, even within the human realm, within the God realms, we can't find any kind of long-lasting, permanent, ultimate pleasure or happiness. So then one turns their mind towards liberation, what we call uh, liberation and enlightenment, or Buddhist liberation. Um, so then based on that, we have verse 10. When mothers who have been kind to one since the beginning of this time are suffering, what is the use of one's own happiness? Therefore, generating the mind of enlightenment in order to liberate limitless sentient beings is the bodhisattva's practice. So this is where the mind wishing personal liberation expands. And you recognize that just as I'm in this bound by this painful situation of being bound by my afflictive emotions and bound by karma, so all other sentient beings are bound. And so we start to develop, um, I call it like a, um, where we start to value others. And we place value not on just them as a human being, but we place equal value, that the, the, whatever we value of ourselves. So again, the value came from the preliminaries in this. Does that make sense? I'm trying to connect it to the text. The value came from recognizing our opportunity, the gold we have underneath our house, right? Our precious human rebirth. And that it's finite, and that we can attain a liberation. So then, once we see the value of our own worth, our own human existence, or our own existence in general, then we start to see the worth of all others. And then we start to value them more and more. And here it says, when mothers who have been kind to one since the beginning of this time. So, again, this is a religious perspective within Buddhism. And I say that just because I don't know how many of you are Buddhists. So, you know, I say it. That's why I uh, qualify it. So, um, here when it says mothers, there's a belief in Buddhism in, obviously, reincarnation. Yeah? So, so then, from this perspective, we've had countless amounts of lives. So in those lives, when we were born from an egg or from a womb, uh, we had a mother. Yeah? And so in this perspective, the amount of lives we've, ha we've had actually is, is mm, exponential or, or so much more than the amount of sentient beings there are. 
So in this perspective, we've all been each other's mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, many, many times. Yeah? This is the view. It's, in one way, it's quite beautiful. In one way, it's quite scary. Because <laughs> maybe that person you don't like was also your mother. Yeah? And I can name some people, but I'm being very careful not to get political in my Dharma talks. <laughs> I don't know who came from Orange County up here either. So I'm very careful. No offense. So, so um, but it's actually quite beautiful because even just recognizing that and meditating on that, it's easy to drop our anger for someone because you recognize this person could have been my mother, and then if we had a good relationship with our mother, then you know it's easy to to have compassion for that person. Or again. You, if you didn't have a good relationship with your mother, whatever a caring figure was for you in your life, your father or grandparent, you could reflect on that all sentient beings were, were, gave this kind of care that this person gave to you. Yeah? That's why it says here, when mothers who have been kind to one since beginningless time. So in Buddhism we have this view of beginningless time, where there's not an actual point of creation or beginning. Um, it's quite daunting. <laughs> if you think about it, your head will explode. And that's actually... <laughs> and that's kind of the point. Yeah. So, um, so then it says, what is the use of one's own happiness? So this is where we're really upgrading our view from just wishing to liberate our, ourselves from afflictive emotions and karma. And we see all others as equal, if not greater in value, and therefore, we upgrade our motivation that, no, I want to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. And this is the mind of bodhicitta. Yeah? This is the very mind of bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta. So, um, so therefore, generating the mind of enlightenment, this mind of bodhicitta, mind of enlightenment is, means bodhicitta, in order to limit, liberate limitless sentient beings is the bodhisattva's practice. Yeah? So this is something we work on, we actually meditate on, we generate this wish. It's a, it's a practice we engage. Um, so then we have verse 11. Now 11 is saying, now this is how to do that. Okay, now you're going to engage in what's called uh, engaging bodhicitta. So up till now, it's mostly been an aspirational bodhicitta. So verse 10, am I going too fast? Because there's just a lot to bring in. Okay. So verse 10 um, is really referring to an aspiration. This is like um, thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Joshua Tree and, and I'm going to go next week, right? So we're planning the journey, we're making aspirations to make that journey, and then in verse 11, we're going to actually set out on that journey. We're going to get in the car and drive, right? So this is the difference between aspirational bodhicitta and what we call engaging bodhicitta. Engaging bodhicitta also engages what's called the six paramitas, but I'm not going to go into those today. So verse 11 here, all suffering without exception comes from wishing one's own happiness. The perfect Buddhas arise from the altruistic mind. Therefore, completely exchanging one's own happiness for the suffering of others is the bodhisattva's practice. So this is tricky, right? The first line, <laughs> all suffering without exception, comes from wishing for one's happiness. I don't know about you, but I spend about 99% of my time wishing for my happiness and trying to achieve that, right? See what I mean? So e even just that is like pretty tough sell, I think. You know? Buddhism is actually, if you really talk about traditional Buddhism, which I do, it's a pretty tough sell. So I, I don't blame anybody at any of my talks for like, no, nah, I'm not going to buy it. You know? I really don't blame you, actually. It's, it's a pretty tough sell. You know? I'm okay with that, because I'm not, you know, I don't have a quota for the month. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, yeah. So, um, so really, this is kind of what I was referring to, where we start, have to start recognizing that when, we're, when, we, we're, when we focus on ourselves alone, now here again, I, I want to you know, clarify, it doesn't mean we don't have self-care and self-compassion. Personally, I think, because of the nature of our culture and how we're raised and the speediness of our, speediness of our culture, the, the overemphasis on cognitive learning in our educational systems, most of us come out into our adult life with some sort of trauma. Uh, I think that's just... Everybody's starting to recognize that now. So you see this term self-care everywhere, right? 
but it's important. It's important to, to I think that is sort of our cultural preliminary, where to, uh, Tibetan culture, um, I could say old Tibetan culture before the Chinese invaded, they didn't have that so much. You know, they generally had a sense of well-being. Of course, you had cases, uh, I'm sure, of, of trauma throughout the culture, but in general, the people had just a sense of, like, they're okay with themselves. Um, I think culturally, and, you know, again, you have to look at yourself individually. I'm sure a lot of you have done uh, all the work, and I'm just talking about people outside of here. So, but, you know, I could talk about myself. Definitely, for me, a lot, there's a lot of self-care required, and, you know, uh, looking into um, what subverts my well-being and what kind of attitudes do I have towards myself, uh, what kind of low self-esteem or confidence if issues I'm dealing with. And I work with that as a practice. But I work with that in relation to understanding that as a basis or preliminary for then being able to recognize that, that focusing on myself and, and, and um, uh, what do you call it? It's a tough distinction here. Focusing on myself primarily as something to sort of cherish and, and um, ignore others with causes me pain. So you see it's a fine line here. And I think for each of you individually, it's going to be, it's tough to suss that out because it's so, you know, the trauma sometimes, um, we don't even like ourselves sometimes. And sometimes we subvert even. So I almost view myself, I'll give you a little, maybe a tip for this. I view myself as another person sometimes. Does that make sense? Like, just how I would be compassionate and loving to someone else, I can treat myself like that. But also, I, but also then I have the habit of, you know, pampering myself as well. So then we have to watch that. You know what I mean by pampering? I don't mean literally. I mean like, like, mm, like... Coddling? Yeah, exactly. The three scoops of ice cream. More like, uh, like if someone else needs help and they're genuinely ask, asking for help and I don't help them and I could help them, because I don't want it, because it would make me uncomfortable, or would, uh, or would put me out, or waste my, you know, I wouldn't be able to watch another Netflix show or something, right? <laughs> that's definitely the line, where, you know, that's the self-centered cherishing. But again, we all go through that kind of thing. I mean, I, I do all the time. So, this is where we have to meditate on where that, you know, where that causes my, me pain. So, for instance, in that example, I don't know if it's a true example, I don't watch much Netflix lately, but... I used to, <laughs> but even just taking that, do I really receive pleasure from that experience? Because I'm indulging in a, in a sense of like, um, where I'm protecting something that actually causes me pain, because that attachment cause it's not, it's not going to fulfill me. Whatever I engage in wishing for some sort of pleasure in that, it's not actually going to fulfill it. But again, telling myself that, you know, I've been a Buddhist 15 years, probably thousands of times, it still happens. <laughs> so. It's a long road. It's a long process. But the point is to meditate. And here, by meditate, I don't just mean sitting with your eyes closed. When we say the term meditate in Tibetan, um, it comes from the Tibetan word gom. So gom just means to familiarize your, your mind with something that's virtuous. Yeah? So when we sit calmly with watching our breath, um, this is called a calm abiding or shamatha meditation. So this is one type of meditation. There's also contemplative meditations, analytical meditations, visualization meditations. So everything I'm talking here is more like a, an, um, a contemplative or reflective meditation where we, we're using our mind. Because, you know, we think all day. You know, we're, we're usually lost in thought. We might as well use it in a positive way. So here when we read commentaries and study these things, we can reflect on, oh, how was that for me? Like, uh, like try it. I advise you. Like, ignore your friend. You know, maybe this is bad to say, but like, you know, if you don't want to do something and you're feeling like you, you want to uh, uh, pamper yourself <laughs> or uh, what do you say, coddle, coddle yourself more, just do it and see what happens. See if the result is more pleasurable for you. I don't mean in the moment, I mean over time. And I think this is, you know, don't do it in a big way, like, you know, not save someone from a burning building. Like maybe save that that time. But I'm saying, like, I often do this just to check. How is the experience? And then analyze the experience. Like, watch your mind. Watch your emotions as the experience happens. This is really a way to see how, how samsara actually is and to see how things actually exist. Yeah? But again, another way is to reflect on it. So here, this verse, we can reflect on also past experiences. Um, for instance, like... Um, 
when we benefit others, when we're thinking more about others, when we're caring more for others, how does it feel? Like, how, how are we relating to ourselves? Do we feel uh, more contentment, or do we feel worse? So we have to analyze that, yeah? Here it's saying we should feel more contentment, like that's the result. So then it says the perfect Buddhas arise from the altruistic mind, so the altruistic mind is this bodhicitta mind, yeah, wishing to benefit others. Um, bring them pleasure, bring them happiness, ultimately bring them enlightenment. And therefore, completely exchanging one's own happiness for the suffering of others is the practice of the bodhisattva. So exchanging oneself for others is this tonglen practice. So this is a, a sitting meditation where we mount on our breath and we imagine that the suffering of another uh, actually comes into our own self-cherishing, our self-centered cherishing thought or mind or emotion. And it actually comes in in the form of black smoke in through our nostrils, if you want, or just into your body. And it completely comes into that. And there's different ways to meditate on Tonglen. I like to treat it like this, because we're, we're actually trying to hit that self-centered cherishing. Because for instance, if we meditate, you know, some people meditate, like a person who has a terminal illness, and you'll meditate taking on their suffering of that terminal illness. And you meditate like that, and you imagine it hitting the very feeling that doesn't want that terminal illness, or the very ego that doesn't want that or is resisting that. So we imagine that as black smoke coming in. I'm going to guide a two or three minute meditation, so don't worry if you're not catching it all. And that comes into us, and then out of that, that transforms, and, and we, we penetrate into a type of egolessness or selflessness. So eventually after practicing this a lot, not only does it grow our compassion and loving kindness, but actually it's a doorway into wisdom, uh, which I was saying is the actual liberating quality of Buddhism, where we recognize we have this experience of the self of the thing we cherish so much, not being as solid as what we thought it was, not being as permanent as what we thought it was. And then we send light out uh, to that person or, or beings, giving them all of our uh, happiness, all of our pleasure, all of our goodness. For a Buddhist, like all of our spiritual qualities, merit, good karma, and we send it to them. Yeah. Now the purpose here is not necessarily to uh, diminish or uh, get rid of their illness. Because as a beginner, just in general, we won't be able to do that. The purpose really here is to erode this fixation on this self-centered cherishing. Yeah? That's the main point of Tonglen practice. It's also not meant to make us feel good in the sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm this great practitioner now. Or like my teacher often tells a story, like he says, if you, you know, like a, if, some, if your friend calls you at three in the morning and they, they, they're, they need to go to the hospital, they're having an emergency and they need a ride, but you, you, kinda, you have to wake up at 5 to go to work. So you tell them, oh, you know, uh, I can't do it. I'll, I'll call you a taxi, but I can't come. But I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll do some tonglen for you. It's sort of missing the point as well, right? Because, of course, we have these opportunities in our life where we can really benefit someone, and we should. But here, this meditation is mainly a practice of eroding the self-centered cherishing. So I think let's do it a little bit. Does that sound okay? Yeah. And I think, just to point out, as a beginner, you're not going to be able to take on someone's cancer, so don't worry. Like, you're not going to... But what we should do is feel like we're going to, we want to take it. So, feel like we really want them to be free of their suffering. So, the reason is, the more intense we're able to meditate on that, the more benefit in our meditation. Yeah? So, I think we can start with someone... Now, you can do this practice with um, loved ones, friends, pets anyone close to you, then of course we extend that circle to include um, strangers, also enemies, and then all sentient beings. But here we'll just start with a loved one. So just bring to mind someone or something you is very close to you and you love. Could be a person or a pet if you're really close to one of your pets. And now, I wouldn't start with something so heavy like cancer or, or a terminal illness. Maybe start with something like a cold or maybe a difficult emotional experience they're going through. This could be something that's current, or it could be something that's happened in the past, and you can bring it into your meditation now. Now first we'd meditate on the nature of that person being our very own mother, reflecting on past lives, reflecting on the kindness of the mother, until like a, we don't have a lot of time now, but until like a, a huge welling of compassion and love for that person comes. 
a little bit easier with someone you have closeness to already. Now wishing them to be free from whatever pain and suffering they're going through. We can mount on our breath or just visualize black smoke coming out of them and we're taking on this suffering into our own self-centered cherishing. So it enters us with black smoke, hits our self-centered cherishing right at the center of our heart. I personally don't mount this on my breath, I just imagine it pouring in. But you can imagine it going in on the in-breath if you'd like. So combined with our wish that they're free from whatever pain they're going through, is this wish and bravery that we're willing to take it on and we want to exchange our happiness for their suffering. Then as you take it on, we're doing this in a kind of sped up way, but slowly that black smoke that's collected at the center of your heart transforms into light. And then we send out all of our goodness as bright light like the sun, hitting our loved one, completely filling them with all goodness, care, love help, whatever material needs they have. And ultimately, we're sending the wishes for them to be liberated and enlightened. So we just repeat like that. Maybe we'll repeat a couple more. So then in, we visualize black smoke or black tar, thick with their disturbing emotions, pain, sickness, old age, death. And we bring it into ourselves, but not into our sort of self in the sense of like we're trying to harm ourselves. It's really into this self-cherishing thought itself. So when we think, ooh, I don't want that, bring, the, bring it to that thought. Does that make sense? We're generating a great compassion for the person, great love, but we're also generating this bravery that I'll take it on. And then as it sort of destroys our self-cherishing thought, it again turns into light and we send out that bright light to them, filled with all goodness, care, love, compassion. And again, we'll do it one more time, visualizing all whatever pain they're going through, emotional, maybe having a cold or flu. Comes in. As it comes in, it doesn't stay. It transforms into this spacious quality, releasing our self-centered cherishing. And we send light of goodness, warmth, benefit to them. Here, when we're done, we can imagine both ourselves and them are completely filled with goodness, held in great compassion, love, care. If you found some spacious quality through this practice, you can just rest in that spaciousness for a few minutes. So that's essentially the Tonglen practice. I just want to leave some time for questions, that's why. It's a little fast, but um, you might, if you're practicing it at home, um, you might want to start with yourself. That's also perfectly fine. You can start with yourself taking your own future pain, yeah? And then you can work to working with others, yeah? Do you guys have any questions? We've got a few minutes. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've noticed, and I've, uh, sorry for already right through this a little bit, um, but there are, um, something that kind of repeats is the three spheres and three poisons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wondering 
So the three poisons are the ones I already mentioned, attachment, aversion, and ignorance. Right. Right? And then the three spheres are usually it's um, the, 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 the self, um, what is it? There's different ways to say the three spheres. I get mixed up sometimes. But um, the, they usually say like the meditator or like the person, the object we're engaging, and then the result of that. That can be the three spheres. Okay. Yeah. So that's usually referring to ultimate bodhicitta. Basically recognizing the um, non-solidity of the self, whatever we're engaging, and the, the person or object, and then the result. Yeah. Anyone else? Is the practice clear of what Tonglen is? There's a little brief break. Casey, you can go over it more next week, probably. Yeah, yeah and we'll send out a little text, too. So make sure you sign up for the, the newsletter if you're not on it or Facebook, and we'll send out a text of, of the meditation itself. Yeah, there's more. Um, there's also different ways to do Tonglen. So if you hear a slightly different way, it's fine. There's a few different ways. No questions? You guys are. It's been enlightened already. It's a very challenging because the idea of you know we are suffering beings and we're taking on someone else's suffering and how are we able to not sort of take care of ourselves or something? Yeah, exactly. You envision this beautiful life that's coming out of us and giving these gifts, but when we're suffering as well, that's that's where. That's where there's the difficulty, you know, creating the space of relieving suffering, but then also learning how, I think you mentioned doing it yourself, mm-hmm. but um, that, that just seems, I think to me, there's kind of this whole martyr idea. You think mm-hmm. about the martyr, also talking about that, I'll take this on, I'll take this on, but the ability to say, I also have to take on that, and, and um, so that's, that's where it becomes challenging. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. Um, I think, yeah, so framing, framing it in a traditional way, I'll frame it first that way, which is that first the recognition has, has to come that, like, like, where does our suffering come from? So usually we're misplacing where that pain and suffering is coming from. So first, that takes some time of studying Buddhism a little bit. Then after that, then we recognize that it's really like some kind of sense of an eye, a sense of an ego clinging which also has an aspect or um, results in us being more focused on ourselves than another person, that actually this is the fundamental thing that causes us suffering. But that's not easy to recognize. That's very challenging. Um, Then with this practice, one wishes to erode that. So the practice actually is dual. It erodes that ego claim as well as it grows compassion and love for others. So I I would say like um, you have to really look at your situation and look at like what you need. So then, of course, like I said, um, if we have something we have to deal with, where it's definitely the practice is not meant as a martyr thing, but we might have that complex ourselves because the way we grew up or with our siblings in a certain way or the way we acted in our families. So we have to work through that a little bit. And it doesn't mean we have to work through it and then do this. They can be done simultaneously. But um, I think we have to learn to recognize that because the practice definitely is not a martyrdom. It's more, and it's not a punishment. It's more just recognizing oh, what is causing me ultimate, we're talking like more of an ultimate pain here, and that's not really a term, but you know what I'm saying? So, and then again, yeah, the, the, like I said, the self-care is important. Um, as a phase, we have to go through, I think it's a preliminary for us culturally, but it's like we can end up like our whole lives in that self-care. Mm-hmm. I've noticed this, that like, I mean, I noticed it myself, right, personally, that we end up just, it's the next thing, and we're always searching the next thing. And then we die. And then we don't have anything after that. I mean, just to be really, really blunt. Because I think about this lately. I mean, I'm not talking to you, actually. I'm talking more to me. I'm always like, oh, yeah, I I tried this thing, or this, or maybe if I learned this therapy technique or something. And those are all good. Like, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just like, if we continue to shop and shop and shop and shop, we never get anywhere. It's sort of like, now again, we can, once we have, I think if we're 70% healed, meaning we've healed 70%, 75, 80% of our trauma, we're good. 
then we should focus on the path to enlightenment. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because yeah. we're often looking for 100% and we're never going to find that. We just end up lost in our attachment. Yeah. But that's really blunt, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> But I think you have to work it out for yourself based off of what I've been saying. It's, it's good to reflect how you're reflecting. Yeah. Yes. You. Oh, you. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, so I guess uh, my question is, if uh, what if the suffering that you see in others is their lack of self-care? Like, yeah. how do you handle that? Sure. Um, you can take that on, too. Yeah. In, in relation to Tonglen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can, you can do that. That's the beauty of, like, I often, I also, like, all of the things I don't like about myself, or I, um, what's the word, I want to have compassion for, too, like, maybe attachments I have, I'll take those on from other people, you know? Because, you know, we all have similar things, right? Yeah, so I think you can work with... But, uh, but as far as, you mean like working directly with them verbally, like, like not just in meditation? Well, I guess uh, I notice it, it, it leads to aversion, because if they're not open to conversation, then I, I want to resist or take care of myself, rather than yeah. figuring out active things to do. For them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah here you're not figuring all that out. You're just, it's just literally a practice. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, in this sense, but yeah, in the other sense, it's more tricky. When you're actually working, <laughs> that's a good question. Though. Yeah. You had something? So, kind of piggybacking on what you were saying, um, and I'm going to struggle to articulate this. It's really hard for me, but um, I've always wanted to do Tonglen since I've heard about it, and it's always been a struggle. Um, and I, I think I kind of understand why it's a struggle now because that idea of self cherishing is the cause of the suffering. Yeah. It's like I don't understand that at a heart level yet. Yeah. yeah. I only understand it in my brain, but not in my heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it takes a long time. I mean, I go in and out of understanding that. Oh, but so my yeah. question oh, yeah, is, so. Um, is it like that's a prerequisite for doing Tonglen, or can Tonglen help you get there? Yeah, I think both. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's it's like it's because I think it's quite difficult to recognize that. Um, so, like the way Tibetan teachers usually emphasize is, you just do it. Like you just start, because actually. I'll guarantee you, if you do Tonglen authentically like this, you're going to... I mean, I don't like to say this because often we... we in, in meditation in the West, in America, we focus so much on the, the pleasurable results we get immediately. And those are very ephemeral. You know, they're, they're so... For instance, we focus a lot on the calmness from practice. But actually, that's just a side effect. That's not the main goal. That's just a side effect. So I'm reticent to say this, but when you do Tonglen, you feel good. That happens. So I guarantee you, if you do Tonglen authentically, you're going to feel better. Like, meaning, like, like you have more contentment. You know? And then the other question is, because I feel like I need a lot of guidance. Like, I'm not, it's really hard. Yeah. To do it? Yeah. Yeah. So like, what are some good resources? Yeah, maybe Casey, we can, yeah, Casey can help with that, too. Um, there's really great books out there, like, diving more into the practice itself. I think the Pema Chodron material is really good. Mm -hmm. Dalai Lama stuff. Anything like that's going to be great. And uh, yeah, you do because, I mean, it's yeah, I'm I'm. It's not a lot of time, so it's hard to go like deeply into it. But maybe well, Casey can do an audio too. Yeah, yeah there you go. But I would advocate because like, this is where I really like the discussion with you guys is, um, you know, really look at this as these things come up up for you. I would advise like, don't judge yourself as not that you are, but other people in the room too. Like as you're thinking about this teaching today. Um, just let your let your thinking go like just but don't necessarily believe everything that's coming But just think oh, that's interesting. I'm having this reaction So not judging it, but just listening to that reaction because I think those are really important because those are also doors doorways Into how to engage the practice, you know It's really important because often I think we get stuck in the reaction to something and then we lose out on the opportunity to understand our minds because we're stuck in the reaction as opposed to just like, oh, that's interesting that I'm thinking that way. But I think we need some degree of mindfulness to be able to recognize something without getting sucked into it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, can you see? One, it's 11.32, but... One, one more? Do you yes, want to stop? one more. Okay. And the is going to stay after, too. So, we're going to have a little Dharma cafe, so you could ask him a question after. Um, can you maybe...
you say a little bit more about that? Like, if you're experiencing some suffering, yeah, that how it's part of the Tonglin to sort of envision that you're taking on that particular suffering that you're feeling, like a stomach ache or I'm depressed today. Yeah, like how you're taking it on from everyone. Or yeah, I think mainly it functions to like reduce the the sort of. Because oftentimes we're having a suffering, like a stomach ache, but then we put a suffering on top of it because we don't want that. Mm. Right? So we double suffer. Mm-hmm. We call it like a double stuffed <laughs> suffer. <laughs> so, so then I think the process is when we work with the Tonglen, we stop focusing so much on our own pain. Like the Dalai Lama has a wonderful story. He was having a, it was a gallbladder, I think. He had an operation a few years ago. But he had like incredible pain. And um, gallbladder or something like that, really painful. And he remembers just like he w- was in India and he was driving down the street and there was just like someone just really destitute. If you've ever been to India, it's just like mind-blowing the amount of suffering people go through. And he just saw this and he felt such compassion. And in that moment, he had such compassion for this person, he didn't feel pain. So I think it's like that. It, it works kind of like that on one level. Because it diminishes our, again, this was my point. It, when we start to divin- diminish our self-centeredness, it actually, like, the result is we become more happy because we're, we're not focused on ourselves so much. Yeah. And then the ultimate result is it'll lead to wisdom. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.